Well, we were in Luke 21 last week and talked about some uh, end times events and uh, made the very important distinction, I believe, that as we interpret uh, prophetic passages, that we need to really be clear on what words, what verses Jesus is talking about that are present events at that time and what are far into the future. I think many uh, uh, debates about prophecy have gone awry when people have not realized that and exercised uh, what we call basic hermeneutics or the science of, of interpreting scripture. And they drilled that into us in Bible college and in seminary that interpret the scriptures correctly. And the big issue was context. In other words, what was going on right at that immediate time uh, is it a current event that's being spoken of, or is it a future event? I remember in Sunday school memorizing, and I've heard a wanted kid say it here on Wednesday nights, 2 Timothy uh, 2.15, study to show thyself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How you interpret scripture is critically important, and mistakes have been made over the generations in interpretation of scripture, and it's important that we study this book, and I think we understand that. Uh, but it's so crucial, especially in this issue of prophecy. Johnny Marshall is one of my favorite uh, people who uh, keeps me up to date on all the latest. Uh, wave at Johnny back there in the sound booth, everybody. Hi, Johnny. Uh, he's always sending me some video. The only person that sends me more videos is Glenn Johnson. And I can't keep up with them all about the latest prophecy things that are going on. Uh, and I asked Johnny when he told me this, uh, are you sure that that's true? And he uh, uh, said that it was. But just a couple of current things on prophecy. Uh, um, Johnny said that uh, uh, someone stood up in the Turkish parliament just a few days ago and uh, this felt like they were making a proposal that the parliament need to place a curse on Israel. Okay, I, I don't know why someone would do that, but that was his belief. And interestingly enough, he left from the podium after he made that pre, uh, 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 proposal, and he died and had a heart attack. Uh, make of it what you will, but I think the Lord was trying to say something. Interestingly enough, and with all respect for my Catholic friends, just this past week, uh, the Pope said that Moses didn't bring the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai. Uh, the Ten Commandments are in our hearts. And then, crazily enough, he went on to say, those that believe the Ten Commandments in the years to come are going to be a problem for us. Uh, I don't know what all he meant by that, but uh, we are in disturbing times, okay? And uh, uh, persecution is going on all around the earth, okay? I believe it will intensify in our own country, and it's going to cost us something to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, to profess Jesus in, in the years to come. And uh, that's okay. God has always used persecution to purify his church. Uh, and actually persecution and martyrdom has spread the gospel. It had the opposite effect that evil, evil people have uh, sometimes intended. It's an interesting passage here in, in uh, Romans, uh, excuse me, Revelation chapter 4. I think I count there seven times the word throne is used, okay? God is on his throne. He sees what's going on. Jesus came, Emmanuel, God with us, 
died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended back to heaven in his first advent, okay, or his first coming, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in his second advent, okay? My dear friend Terry Wardle told me that uh, he went to his first church after Bible college in the mid-60s and the little church in western Pennsylvania. And uh, on his opening Sunday, maybe not the best decision, but that's what he did, he preached on the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, okay, uh, with all the fiery brimstone that he could uh, muster from that passage. Uh, true passage will happen. There will be a great white throne judgment. We will all stand before God and give account of our lives, okay? And, uh, but he finished that message and finished the service and went to the little parsonage by the church the chairman of the elder board came to his house and chewed him out uh, and said to him, you will never preach a sermon of that nature again in this church. Do you understand? There are some people that don't want to hear about God's throne or God's ultimate sovereignty and authority over all things. Okay? But it's in the Bible. It's true. It will happen. Okay? With all the people that would deny Jesus, would deny the Bible, and would say the Christian faith is nonsense, uh, God has revealed himself in this book through his Son, by his Spirit, and we'll do that more and more in the years to come as we come closer to uh, uh, the, the return of Jesus. Look on your outline, if you would. I gave you some end time events, okay? I was listening to Erwin Lutzer this past week from Moody Bible Church, and he was talking about prophecy, and he said exactly what I'm going to say here. I'd like to say he called me to verify that that was true, but that's not the case. Uh, um, but uh, uh, he said, he was talking about different events in, the, in prophecy and whatnot, and he mentioned this point, uh, which I think I said last week, and that is this. There's all these prophetic events that the Bible tells us about. And where the disagreement comes in with many prophecy teachers is in the sequencing of those events. Do we understand? Okay? We've got all these different events. Some say it's going to happen here. Some say it's going to happen here. They're in the Bible. And then the debate begins is when. Okay? That's why I stressed, and I'll stress again today, when we look at Luke 21, okay, in verse 6 there it says at that time, and then in verse 27, it says, at that time, a very close to similar phrase. There's two different times there. Luke 21, 6, okay, he's referring to Titus coming and destroying Jerusalem about 40 years later. And then in verse 27, at that time, he's referring to the second coming of Christ, Revelation 19, when every knee will bow, every tongue confess, and everyone will see him coming on the, uh, the, the, the clouds back to earth. And there will be no denial of who Jesus is. It will be blatantly obvious. In fact, as one verse says that people will be so mortified, they will fall on the ground and they will groan because they missed it. They were convinced that Jesus was an imposter, was some kind of a charlatan. They didn't get it. They had lots of unbelief, okay? But when they see him face to face, there will be no doubt, and every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, we're in this church age right now, this church age of grace, 
where we have the opportunity to share the gospel with people and tell them this is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. I was born again. I said, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. And I became a Christian. And what you can tell them, and I think this is one of the most uh, phenomenal uh, verifications of the Christian's faith, is my life was once like that, and now it's like this. And I hope you have a testimony where you can say that. Okay? I knew a man many years ago, and he was talking about his coming to Christ, and he was in the rock and roll scene and the drug scene and all kinds of terrible stuff. His, his wife, marriage was a mess, okay? And, and he said to a friend of mine, my life is infinitely better because of Jesus. This is what Jesus does. And as we live in this disturbed and troubled and turbulent age, people are desperate to know answers. Do you know that psychiatric issues are going off of the charts all around the country? They cannot prescribe pills quick enough because people are so afraid, so anxious, so worried, so disturbed. And you can tell them who Jesus is. And tell them what I says in Isaiah, that thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Folks, we're going to see phenomenal evangelistic opportunities in the years to come. And as I said, during COVID, when we couldn't even have church, okay, and I was concerned and we were all concerned and what in the world's going on, sit with Jesus, sit with the Bible, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you, and he will. He will give you his peace. He has promised to do that. The peace that passes understanding. Okay, and we can do that in these times so that we live in. On your first section there, okay, I'm just giving you again some broad topics of prophecy, and I am hoping that you will study these matters on your own. Okay, remember there's no discussion or debate about Jesus and his deity. There's no discussion or debate about salvation is received by God's grace through faith. There's no debate about the virgin birth. There's no debate about uh, the inspiration of scripture. But when we come to prophecy, we can disagree, okay? Because as Erwin Lutzer says, the sequence of these events, different commentators see them differently, and that's okay. The rapture of the church, write the word church in that first blank there, please, is shown in 1 Thessalonians 4, okay? And the big debate that everybody wants to know is, will the rapture happen before the tribulation? I personally think it will, okay? Others are not so sure, and that's okay. Anybody want to be here during the tribulation? I don't want to be here. Heaven is looking better all the time. Okay? I believe that the wrath of God will be poured out on the earth on the unrepentant and wickedness and evil during the tribulation. Okay? And, and, and Jesus took my wrath for my sin on the cross. Okay? And I don't believe Christians will be here uh, for that time period. Next one, the Battle of Armageddon is shown in Ezekiel 38, 39, okay? 
It's called the Ezekiel 38-39 war. The nations of the earth are going to gather around Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem. Anti-Semitism is on the rise all over the earth. Okay, and uh, uh, th that is mentioned in Ezekiel 38-39 and Revelation 16-16. 16, 16. There will be a thousand-year visible reign uh, of Jesus on the earth. Okay, and you can see that in Revelation 20. Okay, he comes at the end of the tribulation, destroys the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel at the end of, of, of Armageddon. Okay, and is visibly reigning on the earth. The great white throne judgment is described in Revelation 20, 11, 15. Okay, I'm racing through these. I reviewed this last week, but forgive me. We'll just charge ahead here. The new heaven and the new earth are described in Revelation 21. Please turn there for a moment. I want you to see this. Um, the curse of sin has been broken. Death has been destroyed. The enemy has been destroyed. Evil, Satan, all this, okay? And then in verse uh, Revelation 21, uh, uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had uh, passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautiful, dressed for her husband. Okay, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be uh, with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. What's that old order? Death, brokenness, sin, deterioration, disease, heartache, all these things that we experience in this life. Verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. When I'm having a bad day, I, I read that. And I say, you know what? Heaven's coming. <laughs> say amen with me. I don't know about you, but that sounds good to me. Okay? We can experience the reality of the resurrection Jesus today, okay? But we're not experiencing him in his fullness. This will happen here in Revelation 21. It's a theological principle called now, but not yet. Jesus has washed away my sins. I'm born again. Okay, I'm part of the priesthood of all believers. I'm in God's people. Okay, his presence is in me. But the fullness of that will come, okay, when I see Jesus face to face. And I anticipate that, okay? I walk by faith, not by sight, because I don't see the fullness of that yet, and that is the Christian life, okay? Um, so the new heaven and the new earth are described in Revelation 21. Uh, the next section there, as I said from Irvin Lutzer, Bible commentators see the sequencing of the events differently, okay? Study these, dig into them, 
These guys are phenomenal. David Jeremiah, Chuck Swindoll, Amir Sarfati, okay, J.D. Farag. Uh, uh, check out a magazine that I saw on Tim's coffee table the other day called Prophecy Watchers, okay? All kinds of stuff. Study it, okay? Uh, because uh, I think it inspires your faith, and I also think that it prepares you for the times that we live in. Okay, I told you about a friend and raised just a few months ago who said to me, Drew, what in the world's going on in the world? Okay, people want to know. And I said to my friend, it's all in the Bible. It's all right there. Okay, people want to know. So study prophecy for your own enrichment and worship and also study it to share it with others. And the last one in that first section, issues of time are important as we interpret prophetic passages, okay? Turn back to Luke chapter 21. I mentioned this last week, but if you missed it, I want you to underline these scriptures to say again how important this is. In Luke chapter 21, we have Jesus describing the destruction of the temple that's going to happen in AD 70 when the Roman soldiers come and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And the disciples have asked, asked about the temple and commented. And it says in Luke 21, verse 5, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come. Underline that if you would, please. Okay, and, and I'm saying it again, forgive me for being redundant, but it's so crucial that we understand that Jesus was speaking about that time, and, uh, that present time right there in his era. Look in verse 27. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, do you catch this? This is the second coming of Jesus when every eye will see and every knee bow and tongue confess, okay? The heavens will be split, okay, in Revelation 19, and everyone will see Jesus coming back, his second advent, okay? So we've got a large time span there between the destruction of the temple at that time and at that time when Jesus comes back, okay? And nobody knows how long that time is. But it's the church age, it's the age of grace, it's this age of open opportunity where the gospel is being proclaimed, okay, all over the earth, okay? So we have to understand that if we're going to understand uh, prophecy, okay? <coughs> Excuse me. Issues of time are important as we interpret prophetic scriptures, and I mentioned 2 Timothy 2.15 already. I put the word there, partial preterist. I mentioned preterist last week. I didn't probably clarify it enough. But uh, preterist is from a Latin word that means already happened. Okay? And as I've studied preterism, and I, I hadn't even heard of it 10 years ago, but it's making more and more sense to me. But I should have put the word partial there. Okay? If you say preterist, you are saying everything in the Bible's already happened. And I would... I would not find that, that opinion tenable. Okay, it doesn't make any sense. But if you say partial preterist, you are saying the events of Titus, okay, AD 70, uh, Luke 21, 6, have already happened. But you are saying 
Jesus' second coming, Luke 6, 27, hasn't happened yet, and we are anticipating that. And that's the partial preterist position, okay? I can't dive into that more. You can look it up, type in partial preterist position in your uh, Google search engine, and you'll find more information about it, okay? Again, lots of different topics on that, but uh, the, the, uh, my thinking is still in process, but uh, partial preterist uh, makes a lot of sense uh, to me. Okay, middle section. Two worlds. Many years ago, uh, John Stott, the commentator from England, uh, a wonderful man, came to our seminary uh, in New York, and somehow I got the job of going to LaGuardia Airport and picking him up. Anybody ever driven in New York City? Whoa, baby. You are taking your life in your hands. Put on your crash helmet. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, you literally drive by places and see burned out cars, all kinds of stuff, it's nuts. But anyways, I said to my friend Terry Worrell, yes, I'll go to the LaGuardia Airport and pick up John Stott, okay? Uh, a wonderful man, got to the airport, got, found a parking spot. Uh, I could see this stately Englishman walking towards me with white hair and a briefcase, and uh, just a delightful guy. I love Jesus, a scholar for many, many years in the evangelical world. And uh, uh, he came to our seminary and I think spoke three times over the course of a couple of days. And uh, one of his books is called Between Two Worlds. And he makes the point uh, in, in, uh, in, in the preaching venture, if you will, that you have one foot in the ancient world with Jesus, so to speak, or Moses or Abraham or whatever, and you have one foot in the modern world. And when you preach, you're trying to bridge that gap between what was Moses going through, what was Jesus going through, what was Paul going through, okay? And you're getting into their mindset, their thinking, the context, the world, the ancient world, and then you're bringing that into the present world and saying, this is what this means today. Now, because the Bible is inspired scripture, okay, we can have an ancient book and we can share it and speak it today because we're talking about a timeless God a timeless, infinite, eternal God who's revealed himself in the present and is presently alive. Why does Paul say Christ in you, the hope of glory? Because if you're born again, the presence of God is in you and Jesus is in you because the presence of God is in you and this eternal God is in your life and Jesus says streams of living water will flow from your inmost being. You could all say amen. amen. This is the sustaining power of the gospel. We are not listening or believing a, in a, an ancient dead faith that is just like, you know, Uncle Remus fairy tales. We're talking about a living eternal God who is with us. Okay? Annie Dillard, in one of her books, uh, she grew up, I believe, in the Presbyterian Church in Pennsylvania. Uh, and in one of her books, she's, she describes, and I'll just paraphrase, coming to church, and maybe it was a more formal church, but she said, on Sunday, the, the men would come in their suits and ties, and the ladies in their bonnets and their, you know, their, their dresses and whatnot, and they would come into church, and they would sit down. And she said, as a kid, she always thought, hmm, we're coming into church, we have our Sunday fineries on, and we're talking about the presence of God and the power of God and holy, holy, holy and all these kind of things. When really what we should be doing 
is lashing ourselves to our seats lest God actually show up in his presence and his power and revelation. And then we'd be taken out to a place where we've never been before. I don't know if that catches you, but I've been in church all my life and I've sung all the songs and I've read the Bible from front to back. There have been times it's been a routine. Probably the same for you. But when you begin to think about that and realize we have a living God who gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. And when the Israelites looked at Mount Sinai, they were so terrified and afraid. They said, Moses, we don't want to talk to God. You go for us. I've made quite a study of some of the revivalists uh, in American history, John Wesley and uh, others, uh, Albert Finney and whatnot, uh, and what has happened in some of the revivals. In upstate New York, the presence of God fell with such power and such conviction that they called the area the burned over district because the fire of God fell and people's lives were changed. And a term came out of that revival movement called dread God. Dread, D-R-E, did you ever, did you ever dread a dentist appointment? or a surgery, or they called your name as a kid and they said, go to the principal's office and you're like walking down there like this. Like, what did I do this time? You're dreading that encounter. They found in these revival history movements with Jonathan uh, uh, Edwards and, and Evan Roberts in Wales that the presence of God fell with such power that people dreaded and bowed their heads and laid on the floor and wondering what was gonna happen next. Friends, this is the presence of almighty, eternal God. Revealing himself in a time and place, grabbing people's hearts with conviction. There was repentance of sin. People walked away with a new recognition of the holiness of God. Wow. We're not just talking about a jack-in-the-box thing here. We're not just talking about pull the chain and get what you want. We're not talking about Burger King, have it your way. We're talking about the God and the creator of the universe who demands and requires holiness from our lives, who is real. Sin destroys. And we worship and follow a holy God. And this is what the Bible tells us about. I've put that scripture there. Because the point of all these things about prophecy uh, is not to terrify you. Yet I will say, if you're leaving, living a passive, sleepy, worldly life, maybe it's good if you be terrified a little bit. Okay? Maybe it's good if you realize, wow, life is short. Okay? God could end my life at any time. And I should live with a sense of holiness and reverence and respect about this God that we read about in the Bible. Okay? But Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 talks about fixing our eyes on Jesus. Whatever your stance on prophecy, whatever you think is going on about one world government, the Antichrist, the millennium, whatever else, the only thing we can do today is fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, we could go to a prophecy conference and we could argue about prophecy charts all day long. Okay? 
Your chart, my chart, his chart, you know, that guy's chart, David Jeremiah's chart, Chuck Swan, you know, we could do that all day, okay? That's fine. If you want to do that, do that. But what are you going to do today as you walk with Jesus? Fix your eyes on Jesus, okay? As I said last week, whether Jesus is coming back in 100 years or coming back next week, I'm going to live the same anyways. I have one goal. I want to see my Savior face to face. That's my only goal. And I want my life, every breath, every step, people to see something of Jesus amidst my imperfections. Hopefully because of my life and my testimony and my smile and my warmth or love of Jesus, people will say, you know what? Jesus must be real. Look at him. This is the way he's calling us uh, to live. In your middle section there, on Patmos's, uh, uh, John's vision reveals a heavenly realm. Okay. Next blank. The glory and brilliance of Jesus is unveiled in Revelation. Oftentimes the word apocalypse is used about Revelation, okay? And when we say apocalypse, I remember being forced to watch a movie called Apocalypse Now in a movie review class in, in college, and it was just one of the stupidest things I'd ever seen. Violence, desperation, you know, it was a Vietnam thing, and it was just, you know, it was a waste of time. Apocalypse Now. Okay, so when you say revelation, okay, people think apocalypse, okay. What's really going on in the book of Revelation is Jesus is being unveiled. He's being revealed. The curtain is coming back and people are seeing Jesus for who he is. Now, is there all kinds of weird stuff in Revelation? Of course there is, okay. It is symbolic language, okay, apocalyptic language that was useful and used at the time, okay? Okay, symbolic language, and so we have to look at it in that manner. So the first blank there on Patmos, uh, John's vision reveals a heavenly realm. Keep your finger there. Uh, turn to Psalm 73 for a moment, because I want you to think about this idea of two worlds, the worlds that we live in, and a heavenly spiritual realm that is very real. Psalm 73, see what it says here. Psalm 73, verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Okay, you see what's going on here? Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's recognizing the God of Israel that he worships and that he loves. But then he dips his gaze down and looks around and sees all the nonsense going in the world, and he gets depressed. He gets discouraged. He's wondering, what in the world's going on, Okay. Here comes the little darlings. Hi, kids. Everybody say, hi, kids. Aren't they wonderful? Jan and her team are doing an amazing job uh, loving these kids and pointing them to Jesus. And uh, uh, I don't have to go read Psalm 73 yourself, but go back to verse uh, uh, 17 or verse 15 in Psalm 73. If I had spoken out like that, 
I would have betrayed your children when I tried to understand all this. It troubled me deeply. Ever try to understand the evil in the world? Don't waste your time. Okay? Just stop. Don't try to be mini philosopher with every problem in the world, okay? All you do is give yourself a headache and a stomach ache, okay? And, and it, it doesn't change anything. Verse 17, Psalm 73. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Friends, this is powerful. We live in an evil, troubled world. We get depressed. We get discouraged. What are we going to do? When is Jesus coming back? Blah, 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 blah. And on and on it goes, okay? You enter into God's presence or into God's sanctuary. You get a different view of the world. And suddenly you realize it's God's problem, not mine. I can't fix it all. We're going to let him sort it out at the end. In the meantime, we're going to walk with Jesus. We're going to spread the gospel. We're going to tell people about the Lord. And we're going to demonstrate by our daily lives and our countenance that Jesus is real. Look back at your outline there, if you would. On Patmos, John's vision reveals a heavenly realm. Psalm 73, verse 17. Read that this week. The glory and brilliance of Jesus is unveiled in Revelation. Jesus opened their eyes on the Emmaus Road. We're going to be in that passage in a few weeks as we get closer to Easter. One of my favorite uh, stories about Jesus in the Bible. Okay, what is going on there? Jesus is risen from the dead. The disciples are depressed. They don't know what's going on. Okay, and he listens to them. And then he begins to go through the whole uh, Old Testament scriptures, it seems, and points out all the scriptures that speak of himself. Okay? And they still don't see who he is. Then, of course, he comes to their house, and then it's revealed to them, and they realize. And what do they say? Okay? Jesus first rebukes them and says, how slow you are, how dull of heart and slow to believe. Anybody dull of heart and slow to believe? I'll put myself at the head of the line. There are some times I'm stuck in the nonsense of this world and I'm going, Jesus, where are you? And we've all been there because you live in the same broken world I live in. Friends, it's an issue of vision and our eyes opening and realizing who Jesus is, okay? Eugene Peterson has a book about, the, uh, uh, about Revelation. He talks about taking these walks when he was a pastor at Bel Air Presbyterian Church in Maryland. And on Monday, he would walk through the woods, okay? And pastors are tired on Monday and don't want to talk to anybody, Okay, it's just the way it is, okay? But he would take this walk with his wife through the woods. And he said when he first began the walk, he, he was just kind of like foggy and dead and just kind of, you know, whatever. But he said it never failed that he would come to some point and he would see a little blossom on the ground or see an insect or see a piece of fruit in a tree or see a stream and his senses would gradually wake up to the beauty of God's creation. And his challenge all through that book and in the book of Revelation is Revelation helps us to wake up about who Jesus is. Church, wake up about who Jesus is. And I'm talking to myself too. 
He rose from the dead. The Bible says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. We can deal with anything that happens in this life. I many times don't like this broken world any more than you. But we're here. What are we going to do about it? We're going to tell people about Jesus. We're going to walk with Jesus. Okay? His love and his life is going to flow from our lives. Last section here. After persecutors tried to kill John twice, he was exiled to Patmos. Okay, we read, we read uh, uh, chapter four there about the throne room of God, okay? And we get this whole book, okay? Uh, words from Zechariah are highlighted, Zechariah and Daniel are highlighted in Revelation chapter one, verse seven. Look at, go back to uh, the first chapter of Revelation. Okay, look what it says here. Verse four, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and is to come. You could highlight that. We could talk about it for three hours. Who is presently, who was in the past, and who is to come. Do you see how important time issues are? We're talking about an eternal God, Alpha and Omega, who is and was and is to come, who's overseeing and superseding all this and integrating himself in the reality of this place by his Holy Spirit. Friends, this is why worship is so crucial. When Craig leads us in worship, would you stop thinking about your hamburger you're going to eat at lunch? <laughs> now, I'm giving you a little slap on the wrist there, I understand, but this is serious. Jesus is eternal God. He walked in this earth. He died. He rose from the dead. His spirit is here. And when you worship, you're entering into an eternal reality. And I've heard this stupid phrase thrown around over the years. Oh, that person is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And I think that's garbage. And this is why. The people who have accomplished most for Jesus throughout the centuries had their eyes fixed on heaven and Jesus. And when your eyes are fixed on heaven and Jesus and who God is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you take that vision and that power from that encounter into your daily life. Friends, we are so wrapped up in the pedestrian nonsense of everyday life. Now, we all got to feed our kids. We've got to eat breakfast. We've got to, I get it. But keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And that's what Revelation helps us to do. Get your nose off the ground. Get your eyes on heaven. This God who was, who is, and is to come. And worship helps us uh, to do that. Okay? So we see that there. And then look in verse 6 there. Look, or verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come the Almighty. This is what Revelation does. And you can look in Zechariah 12.10 and in Daniel 7 and see some of those references again. The timeless God is worthy of our worship and our trust. John and Ezekiel saw visions of God's throne. And I would encourage you to read Isaiah 6 this afternoon and check out Ezekiel chapter 1, okay, verse 26. The next blank, the throne symbolizes God's eternal sovereign rule over all things. Putin's not in charge of the world. 
The president's not in charge of the world. I was watching the Weather Channel the other day, and it had this logo, and they're always pushing this climate change nonsense on everybody. And, and it said, our planet, our future. Well, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's not our planet, and it's not our future. Everything is from God. Today, tomorrow, yesterday, it's all from God, okay? And God's creation is for us to enjoy and appreciate, and heavens tell the glory of God, and creation points to God. Okay, we see his design everywhere, okay? The lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle are each the chief of their species, okay? And it's mentioned there, and I, you're going to have to jump back because uh, we're out of time to chapter 4. Worship team, you could come. Lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle are each the chief of their species. Together, they symbolically embody the fullness of God's nature and power. That's a paraphrase of Alan Johnson in his commentary on the book of Revelation, and you can see that in that depiction of the throne of God. Folks, we will all stand before this throne. Now, it says in Hebrews, come boldly to the throne of grace. And that's the invitation of Calvary, the invitation of forgiveness of sins, and the invitation to come to Jesus. That's the good part of that throne. The scary part of that throne is for the unrepented and the wicked and the evil that don't know Jesus. And God's throne is real. And he's reigning on that throne right now. And his spirit is here preparing us. We are the bride of Christ. And judgment begins in the house of God. Judgment begins in the house of God. We often pass around lots of flowery words about revival and come Holy Spirit and, you know, God, we want you to meet us and all this. Folks, remember what Andy Dillard said? We ask for God to come. We ought to strap ourselves to our seats lest he come in power and absolutely terrify us. And that's what happened in the revivals of an early generation. They dreaded God. They wanted to meet him, but when he came, they were absolutely terrified because of the holiness and the power and the presence of God and the awareness that we are sinners and we need Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for these words in Revelation. Lord, they're scary, but they're real. And Lord, you see our world and the brokenness of this place. And yet Jesus died and he rose from the dead and he's coming again. And I ask in this scary time, this turbulent time, this troublesome time that we live in, that you would fill us with your spirit, with your encouragement. If we need conviction of sin, Lord, give that to us. If there's a lack of awareness of who you are, if we're spiritually dull, Lord, those churches in Revelation, you spoke to each one. And it was like a barometer of what you wanted to change and what you wanted to see different. And no doubt, Lord, there's things that you want to change in us. And we say, here am I, Lord. We present our bodies as licking sacrifices. Say, Jesus, you saved me from hell. You washed away my sins. I belong to you. 
and I give up my rights to my plan, my agenda. So I pray that you would speak and that you would work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.